Hi, Will Gethin here. Welcome to the first episode of Series 2 of the Folly of Blisters podcast. In this episode, I talk with Dan Millman, legendary teacher of the Peaceful Warrior's Way and author of the cult spiritual classic, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, later screened as the film Peaceful Warrior and 17 other books which have inspired millions of readers all around the world. In this episode, we explore the extraordinary experiences, wake-up calls and life lessons that shaped Dan's evolution from childhood dreamer to world-class athlete to international spiritual teacher and best-selling author as recounted in his new memoir, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, which unveils the real-life journey of the man behind the Peace Warrior legend. Enjoy the journey. Hey Dan, great to meet you, uh, finally in audio form at least. Uh, we've been in touch variously uh, on email over the years and this is the first time we get to actually speak. How are you today? Fine, this feels like an auspicious occasion. <laughs> Indeed, it certainly does to me. Are you at home in Brooklyn today? I am, Brooklyn, New York. And if you hear any sirens in the background, I don't charge extra for the special effects. Oh, okay. Well, let's hope that uh, there'll be no sirens, especially coming to your home. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I'm th- absolutely thrilled, Dan, to have you as a guest on this podcast. Um, your first and seminal book, the best-selling book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which shares your partly autobiographical spiritual journey or metamorphosis from young athlete through to becoming uh a peaceful warrior effectively was a was a real door opener for me when I first came across it probably around 1993 or 4 when I was about 23 24 and uh, while I'd read a couple of uh, Castaneda books by then about his encounters with the legendary shaman Don Juan which I found really fascinating but perhaps a little bit far out and not necessarily practical or accessible for my own life your book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, was the first book I remember that really introduced me to the idea of um, a spiritual journey in an accessible way. And I was enthralled by your wild man sage character Socrates, the, the, the mentor and teacher of the peaceful warrior's way in, in the book. And I'd say um, that book was a, a, definitely a key inspiration for me undertaking a spiritual journey of my own a few years later when I headed off to India. So in this conversation, we'll be hearing more about your new book as well, uh, mostly, uh, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. But I'd just love to talk a little bit about the way of the peaceful warrior first. Sure. Uh, so the way of the peaceful warrior represents Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey Map for Transformational Storytelling with young Dan, your sort of partly fictional self, following a call to adventure with the meeting with his mentor Socrates to train as a peaceful warrior which leads him on a road of trials with many challenges as he meets his fears and grows before returning home transformed with an elixir to share with, uh, for the benefit of others. And uh, Dan, were you familiar with the hero's journey map when you wrote The Way of the Peaceful Warrior? And did it inform your writing of the story in any way? Well, I might have come across Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, um, but it wasn't in the front of my mind. Uh, when I wrote that, you know, a, a, a quotation by Michael Crichton, the author Michael Crichton comes to mind. He said, the difference between fiction and life is that fiction has to make sense. <laughs> and what he meant by that, I believe, was it's about story, the key to story. And to me, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey uh, and the Stages are about uh, stories, literature, movies, film. That's why Chris Vogler wrote that nice book, The, the uh, Writer's Journey, yeah. uh, using Campbell's uh, motif. Um, I, I, it, whether it applies always to life and, and every person is a hero and going on their own journey, 
it's a wonderful way to view one's life. I'm not sure how it uh, fits. Um, but though our lives are stories and, and they're treasures because no story on the planet is exactly like yours or mine or anyone's. So uh, our lives are a novel being written, you could, you could say. Absolutely. Well, I think the, the sort of hero's journey, mythical story arc is kind of in our consciousness anyway, whether you're aware of it or not. So you, you probably could have written the book with a hero's journey format without even being necessarily specifically aware of Campbell's map um, agree. to describe it. Yeah. Um, so I know that The Way of the Peaceful Warrior book took initially a few years to find its way in the world with initial modest sales during the first print run in the early 80s before eventually going on to become a massive international bestseller with an iconic spiritual classic. When you first published the book, Dan, did you have high hopes for it or could you have even imagined it to become as successful as it actually has done, uh, selling millions of copies around the world in 29 languages, I believe? I, I was new to writing at the time. And it took me seven years to put something together. I had no idea what it was, but um, I don't want to jump prematurely into the new book, but I do describe four mentors in Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. You do, and yeah. I had, I had studied with uh, the first two mentors, and I was, uh, they opened doors to insight, and I wanted to share in my own words. I, I had read Castaneda as well, and in a way, people have asked me, did he inspire your work? Well, yes and no. He inspired me to write something more practical more into every day where we could find wisdom in unexpected places, even an old service station, a petrol station. So that um, when I wrote the book, I, I had no idea. I thought maybe a few college students would like it because I wrote about my college years. So no, I had no idea that the book would ever be published or, or, or make and produce an income or anything like that. There was a pure place I just wanted to share some insights I'd had in, in the way that it ended up. Yeah, it's amazing. Reading your latest book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, I, which is obviously your, your own true life journey, um, encapsulating all that's in the way of the Peaceful Warrior, of course, fictionally, partly, and beyond. Um, and I was amazed of reading your new book, how the way the Peaceful Warrior was such a slow burner. Like I sort of almost imagined this overnight bestseller, but of course it took years to sort of slowly work its way into the world and then really sort of rocket and, and get bigger and bigger uh, and ripple, ripple out to, uh, to the whole world. Well, I'm reminded, Will, of a, a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine. It, it had uh, an image of a, a wide chalkboard. Remember the old chalkboards in school? Yep. Um, and, and it had a formula written from the left-hand side all the way across, maybe 15, 20, 20 uh, uh, feet. Uh, and it, it went, this changes to this and becomes this equals this. And it went all the way across. But right in the middle of the formula, someone had erased part of it and written in, then a miracle happens. And, and that's pretty much my experience with Way of the Peaceful Warrior and, and many moments in my life. Um, it wasn't formulaic or strategic. It was more improvisational comedy, it feels like. Which is, which uh, is, than, which is, which is brilliant. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you know, I can actually vividly remember, I mean, a friend had, meant, had mentioned your book to me, I remember, um, at the time, I, just before I bought it. And I remember being intrigued, and then I was just walking past the bookshop one day, and I remember seeing that eye-catching picture of the book in the window with the man's body vibrating in light before the backdrop of the service station and the full moon behind it. 
And I remember immediately being drawn to it and going into the store and, and buying it. And uh, that does feel like a sort of life-changing moment in a way. And um, I had so much resonance with that book and, and sort of real desire and thirst to kind of go on a journey like, like the one you described. Um, well, before, before my publisher went with, changed the cover to the movie edition of the book, when the movie came out in 2006. Yeah, it's got a new cover, isn't book. it? Yeah. Yes, it does. And I love the old iconic cover. Um, and there's a, a brief story behind that. Um, uh, they gave the manuscript to the uh, to the illustrator, and he actually read it. And he was so inspired, he came up with that amazing arch- archetypal uh, image uh, of that figure with the, the sunrise inside the figure in a night scene around the body. Um, but the the person who created that cover, Terry Lamb, also created the image of that uh, other well-known character, Joe Campbell, yes. of Cam- Campbell's Cigarettes. And, and Terry said it balanced out his karma, so to speak, <laughs> creating the Peaceful Warrior. Oh, really? Yes. Um, do you know, funny enough, thinking of Socrates, your, your sort of uh, mystical guru character um, in the book, um, when I went to India a few years after reading your book, I... Uh, I was staying in Pune for a while, and I rented a, a, a room in this big uh, apartment block building. And next door to me, in the room next door, was this uh, really wild character, an Indian guy with a big wari beard and wild, wild hair, sort of Afro hair, naked but for lungi. And much like sort of reminiscent of your encounters with with Socrates originally, the, or the character who would inspire him, he he lured me into his room, and he would sort of rant these, ma- these mystical musings staring at me intently with these sort of rapturous eyes and uh, he reminded me of some ancient Greek philosopher and I wrote in my diaries at the time I, I called him Socrates and um, and it wasn't until yesterday that thinking about this conversation that suddenly occurred to me of course that was probably inspired by reading your book this character Socrates <laughs> well it's, yeah, that's interesting Will uh, in, in, in a brief paragraph in the preface of the new book I state that Socrates is real. Dan Millman is a fictional character. Uh, and, and I also say just as young Arthur had Merlin, Frodo had Gandalf, Luke Skywalker had Yoda, Daniel San had Mr. Miyagi, and Carlos Castaneda had Don Juan Mentors. That's right. Mentors and students from Life and Legend, I had my Socrates. Yes. Um, but so, yeah, how did the... Just, yeah, maybe just tell our listeners how the creation of Socrates came about. Because he was originally inspired, wasn't he, from your, your experience of meeting a guy at a service station um, and with him you had some, some discussions about spiritual nature of reality and, and other things. He really inspired you. Uh, I think you write in your book that doors opened in your mind on, on meeting this character. In fact, would, would that even have been the call to adventure, do you say, for, for what, yeah, your, your hero's journey? Well, out of consideration for some listeners who who don't really know my work, I might even I might even step back a little bit further and explain the origins of the term "peaceful warrior." Please do, yeah. I was actually, yeah, as I stated in the memoir, that that I um, I was teaching a course at Oberlin College. I was an assistant professor uh, and in the physical education department. And based on my experiences in the martial arts, I decided to teach a course on Aikido and Tai Chi, uh, both of those. Um, as an introduction to the to the more flowing martial arts, and uh, I was going to call it in the in the course catalog the way of the warrior, but because they're internal arts, they're not really aggressive arts. They're more flowing and receptive. 
uh, I decided uh, a light bulb went on and I went, wait a minute, why don't I call it Way of the Peaceful Warrior? And that's the first time organically I came up with that term. Yeah. And, and after I'd met this old service station attendant, about three in the morning after a late night date, I was walking home on impulse, went into the service station and met this cosmic old guy. He was the night mechanic. But he had many insights he shared. We just got into discussions about life and death and the cosmos. And I remembered that. He did inspire an epic poem I wrote. I don't even have it anymore, but it was you know, 50 years ago or, or more. Um, but I was inspired. And when it came time to write a book, there was something I wanted to share. You know, I, I'd always been uh, very much into self-improvement. I took memory courses and speed reading, and I learned sleight of hand and ventriloquism and um, and various acrobatic arts and martial arts. And But one day, it struck me that no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. But if I could help other people, if I could somehow influence other people in a positive way, I had no idea how at the time, then it made my life more meaningful. And that's when I had the urge to begin writing. Uh, and again, it sh took shape gradually. And I went, I don't know how to write a book. So maybe I just write about my life and weave some other elements in. And I remembered this old service station attendant. And he became the, the source, the mentor. And it's not just a, a technique I used as a writer. That sounds too conscious. It was more a, a, a loving impulse on my, on my part. Um, but I don't know, as Dan Millman at the time, whether I could have expressed the wisdom uh, with as much humor uh, and uh, insight as I could have as my character. But inventing uh, a muse in creating this character, through him, I was able to step outside myself, beyond myself, and express what was in that original book. Yeah, it definitely feels like a, 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 a very such a strong way to to uh to tell the story through this through this really colorful eccentric character and i remember you describing in in your new book uh peaceful heart spiritual uh hang on sorry spirit uh what's it again oh, peaceful heart, heart warrior, warrior spirit, warrior spirit. Um, <laughs> um yeah you, you describe how uh the publishers originally because you, you, you of course you, you originally just only mentioned they were meeting with the with the with the night mechanic in the book and then the the publisher came back to you and said we actually want to have hear more about this character so out of that grew a, a new a new draft with this with this embellished character who then informed uh, a huge part of the book and, and and as your mentor and i can imagine that must have made it a such a more vivid and interesting book as a result yeah i don't know how i did it actually and that i've had that experience many times writing characters who don't exist in the morning are fleshed out by the uh, late afternoon. Um, but yes, it was a 20 hour a day. I barely slept, uh, uh, immersion for almost a week. I would write late into the night, early morning, then go to sleep for a few hours, get up and write again. Uh, it was a two week rewrite and that transformed the book and transformed my life eventually. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way that was the call to, to the adventure, the call to adventure. On, on that uh, that journey. Yeah, so Campbell um, said the call is like a phone ringing, calling you to make the journey, and it comes back till you answer the call. So do you, what do you feel would it be the, the defining moment then to begin the journey? Would it have been the, the initial meeting with um, who, what would become Socrates or 
the internal impulse to start writing the book? Well, I, again, um, like many young people, even writing a 10-page paper in school was intimidating, daunting. So um, I hadn't really thought about writing a book, but I had done a series of articles on gymnastics, which was my area of expertise at the time. And the stack grew of, of a series of articles. It got higher and higher. And I looked at it one day and another light bulb moment. It was, wow, that almost looks like a manuscript of a book. And that's the first time I really thought about writing a full book. And and it went through many sh shape-shifting moments over a seven-year period, the first book, uh, until finally it was, I thought, ready to submit to a publisher. I sent it to a bunch of publishers. They sent it back unopened because they said, we don't accept books except through a literary agent. I didn't know what a literary agent was. Um, so again, I was just learning the ropes um, kind of like Candide, uh, stumbling through toward the light, and things seem to have worked out. Yeah. So, Dan, just can we just uh, pinpoint, like, um, for the sake of, sort of starting the journey, as it were, when when the call was? Was it was it the actual call to write the book? Would you say? No, I, I think it was what I described previously Meeting. about realizing that it would. No, it was really that impulse that I wanted to share with yeah, others. Yes, I, yeah, I believe. Okay. I believe people have asked me, how come you met these four amazing teachers, Dan? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it wasn't because I was more deserving or anything like that. It was, I believe, um, it was out of that impulse, my commitment to share whatever I learned with other people. It was that call to teaching. Yeah. Um, not everybody is called to be a teacher, but I was early on. I wouldn't have used those words, but I wanted to share and that out of that impulse, you know, uh, came the first book. But, you know, I didn't write a book after Way of the Peaceful Warrior for 10 years because I, f I wrote what I had to say and I was content with that. Yeah. But when I met the third of the four mentors in my new book that I described, the man I call the warrior priest, that inspired me, gave me new insights to start writing. And then it was a book, almost a book a year. Yes, uh, and it only took 40, 40 years to yeah. write the eighteen. Yes, books. okay. Well, um, we'll come on to onto that bit a little bit a little bit further in. Um, let's sure. just rewind the clock a little bit, Dan. Just just give a, a little a sense of um, how your your childhood um, developed and led you on the onto this journey. Because of course you started off with a sort of penchant for daredevil stunts, and and then. Doing martial arts and 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 gymnastics, as you as you described, um, how did you? And of course, you then became a champion gymnast. How, how did that come about? Just give a, a, a brief synopsis of your sort of emergence as a as a champion gymnast, that was the which set the uh, scene for you to develop. Then uh, from there towards a life of meaning. Of course, uh, you probably heard the saying that we can only understand life looking backwards, but we have to live it forwards. Um, so at the time, I ha didn't connect anything up to my future. I just followed my nose and my instincts. And as a young boy, I discovered, well, first of all, uh, I, it started in kindergarten when I was the youngest in my class. My mother liked to work out in the world, and so she got me into uh, school very early. I was always the youngest child in class, first grade, second, and so on. Uh, every level, I was the youngest. And also, I was small in stature, which was great for gymnastics, not so much for basketball. <laughs> so I was I, also, I talked too much, a lifelong habit, I believe. Um, 
and it attracted the attention of some bullies. And so I finally, after being bullied and threatened and punched and, and, and so on, uh, like many children, uh, I decided to ask my father to teach me about, about self-defense. And he took me to a boxing gym where I discovered very rather quickly um, that I didn't like hitting other people or getting hit. <laughs> so I moved on to judo, which was uh, the word means the gentle way, where where I could throw larger people using leverage and so on. And that led to a lifelong interest in martial arts, to karate uh, and to other forms of martial arts, which developed kind of that initial warrior impulse, the sense of being strong and growing into my manhood, you know, around uh, puberty and so on uh, through adolescence. Uh, but also there was a parallel line, which was I discovered an old trampoline and discovered I loved jumping up and down on a trampoline, which many people can relate to today. There are trampolines everywhere in the backyards and so on. But I had no idea, Will, that jumping up and down would lead to a scholarship to college, a gymnastics career, a world championship, and all that followed. I, I just had no conception. I'd be teaching at Stanford University. Uh, through that initial impulse that I loved to play like the acrobat and flip and somersault. And again, even then I wouldn't have predicted that I would have gone from creating talent for sports into the arena of talent for living. That contemplation, what what skill sets can prepare us better for think, life? Thinking about it, I guess it kind of makes sense in a way that the appeal of your book may be partly this sort of perhaps quite unique synthesis of um, you know someone who's actually lived a, a warrior life in the sense of a gymnastics physical uh, physical uh, mobility etc combine them with this sort of spiritual uh, deeper search for life and, and the wisdom that came with that so it's like that, that kind of synthesis of those two elements I guess makes the peaceful warrior very very compelling I'd like to point out that athletes um, there aren't any dumb athletes that I've seen there are athletes who are not academically motivated, who don't spend as much time, they don't find as meaningful doing abstract studies and abstract thinking. Yeah. But if someone is a coordinated athlete, their nervous system becomes quite intelligent. Yes. You know, we have an emotional intelligence. We also have kinesthetic intelligence. And uh, so the nervous system is connected to the brain, of course. So it's all one unit. Um, and what I didn't realize is that uh, athletics in my case, gymnastics, was the beginning of my very real spiritual training. Yes, I learned about being in the zone and the flow and meditation, meditative movement. I tell the story in, in the memoir how a coach, uh, when I started coaching the, uh, the gymnasts at Stanford University, uh, a coach from USC in Southern California came, uh, brought his team up to compete with ours. And he uh, whispered to me in an aside, he said, Dan, I heard this strange rumor that you have your gymnasts meditate before competitions. And I went, no, of course not. I wouldn't do that. I have them meditate during competitions. <laughs> he didn't really get it, but I certainly did by that time that training and performing was a form of meditation. You have to be in the moment and so on. So that was the beginning of my spiritual training, even though I never would have used that word. Yes, but I... Would you say you were quite ahead of the curve, though? Because I doubt many people were teaching uh, right. physical, athletic uh, sports and things and meditation at that time, were they? That combination. Agreed. Yeah. No, it, that was 
that was a fringe activity yeah. at the time. This is before yoga exploded yeah. in, in meditation. But yes, this was unusual just for outliers yeah. at the time. So we have the call to venture, which was with, with your impulse to share with others and the call to teach. And then when we start the journey or a character or protagonist starts the journey, they cross the threshold to take up the journey, the road of adventure. And crossing the threshold to begin the journey is symbolized very uh, potently in the tarot with the with the uh, picture of the fool on the tarot card, the swashbuckling character with a yes. knapsack on his back, standing on the edge of the cliff, ready to take the leap into the unknown. And in your case, Dan, being the more athletic um, uh, figure, perhaps preparing to do a, a triple backflip into the unknown. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, C.G. Jung, whose in-depth psychology formed the foundations of the hero's journey, which Joseph Campbell later built on, called the fool the precursor to the saviour. And by this he meant that the willingness to, to be a fool is the precursor to transformation. And it's the idea that you can't really move forwards with a new goal or, or new venture um, unless you're prepared to take a risk of making a fool of yourself. Um, so we have to sort of, yeah, to prepare to take the risk to make mistakes, to grow. Um, has that been your experience, Dan, that you've had to be prepared to be a fool to, to learn on the path? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> as... as and I give incidents in the book, uh, even in my later years, where, where um, you know, Socrates, the character, once said to me, "We're all fools. Just some of us know it; others don't." Um, and, and there's the archetype of the wise fool as well. Now, in the tarot, the fool card actually is the innocent beginning the journey, uh, blinded by the sun, looking up toward the sun, and about to step off a precipice. And, and that's uh, what it what it felt like. Uh, I use the image of going down a river and, and heading toward the white water. Everything's calm, and then suddenly the the boat starts moving more quickly. And, and I really met that more than once in my life. Uh, various challenges, as you know, I start the book uh, literally up in the air and upside that's down right. at the World yep. Championships yeah, at Royal Albert Hall, London. Um, so I have good good uh, associations with London and the, and the UK in general. Yeah, you, I, I'm just re- remembering you say in the book, there's a, there's a part in some time in your childhood or early adolescence where you you were told, jump by somebody. Um, and, oh, and you learned yes. just to jump without thinking into things. Yeah. Well, that was the, the moment when I was following my um, nine-year-old streetwise school friends. I was six at the time. And they climbed a house under construction. There was a sand pile about 20 feet below and uh, they were jumping off and I wanted to so badly. How many of us have had that experience? We want to do something, but we're afraid. Yeah. And I kept stepping back and stepping forward. And finally, Steve, uh, you saw um, one of my earlier role models and mentors um, in childhood. He, he yelled, yeah, Danny, just stop thinking about it, jump. And, and that made sense to me. And that became a, a meme or a, a mission statement for me, probably through the the oncoming years just stop thinking and jump yeah so it reminds me of, of doing a, a bungee jump once in south africa which they were billing as the the highest <laughs> in the world i'm not sure that's even true but um yeah you're standing wow. on the top of this extraordinary precipice and you think how on earth am i going to actually jump off that off that and who knows what what in you stirs but something eventually makes you just go for it and you just do it yeah even though you might be going to your death <laughs> or it feels like it <laughs> <laughs> right i can relate yeah yeah <laughs> So taking up the, the road to adventure um, and committing to the journey, um, following the call to adventure, the hero on a mythical quest will 
will start to learn new skills and develop themselves. And in your case, you were, you were a peaceful warrior in training. And your book details, as you've mentioned, the, the many fascinating mentors and trainings that you experienced along the way. And you mentioned, um, just as in the mythical stories and films of various mentors like um, Gandalf to, to Frodo and Merlin to Arthur, um, you had four mentors who, who were instrumental in, in training you on your journey. And uh, you refer to them respect, respectively as the professor, the guru, the warrior priest, and the sage. Um, what were the most important tools you learned from these mentors along the way? Let's say for now, during the early formative stages. So a couple, maybe a couple of examples of, um, of really powerful lessons you learned along the way from these mentors, or two of them. Let me, let me emphasize that... Um, because of that commitment I mentioned before to share what I learned uh, through apparent coincidences or synchronicities, uh, a phone call from someone, for example, mm. or stumbling across something, that's how I found each mentor in line. And this was over a 20-year period. Yes. I wasn't a spiritual vagabond just collecting initiations from various teachers. Um, and the professor... Um, these are all radically different teachers. Yeah. And I probably need to also, to provide context, I need to say that um, I didn't presume in writing this memoir, uh, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, I didn't presume that uh, everyone, legions of people were going to want to read about this Dan Millman character. I'm not a celebrity. However, the book is more about the spiritual quest. And I believe we're all on that hero's journey. We're all on a spiritual quest, whether or not we would use that term. Yeah, uh, We're all seeking fulfillment. We're seeking satisfaction, meaning in life and purpose. Um, so it, we all do, we share that. We're different paths up the same mountain, let's yeah. say. And so uh, the professor represents the technological approach to enlightenment. And that's what he promised, illumination, uh, in a 40-day intensive training, 10 hours a day for 40 days. How many of us have time for that today? But I, in back in the uh, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, I was able to, um, through, again, a series of coincidences and circumstances, make time to do that training. And we've all heard of trainings like EST and Avatar, and there's so many uh, life springs, so many methods mm and systems where you do exercises and find your way to more clarity and so on. Um, and so that's what the professor represented. And I learned a global heritage of spiritual traditions through his own unique background that I describe in the book. Uh, he, I was able to go into this in-depth training. People who've heard of the Enneagram materials and the best-selling books, that came from the professor. People say, no, it was from the Jesuits, the Sufis, or Claudia Naranjo, Helen Palmer, but they all sourced it to the man I called Oscar Ichazo. Well, that's his name, but I called him the professor. So that's, that's what he represented, the technological, hard work-based approach to enlightenment. The guru, entirely different. He said, I'd rather beat you with a stick than t tell you to meditate your way to enlightenment. He had a more radical approach. And presumably, he stated very clearly, and he, there was considerable evidence at the time that attracted teachers like Ken Wilber and Alan Watts, teachers and authors who, who were uh, amazed by this 
particular guru, um, they, uh, he, he was transparent to the divine. In other words, he transmitted divine illumination through just sitting Actually, with Actually, it might be worth, be worth mentioning that, at this stage for any listeners that might know of the guru. He, he, was, yes. he was known variously, wasn't he? His various different names, um, from Franklin Jones yes, to Adi Dar, Bubba Free John, Dar Free John, and probably various others as well. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And he had a world, worldwide following at the time. Um, and he did have the mojo. I will, I will say that. He really was quite powerful, creative, uh, hilariously funny at times. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, but one of the themes that I repeat in the new book is that all teachers are human beings and all humans have flaws and foibles and frailties. Absolutely. And we, we often like to project perfection, divine mm. perfection. In fact, it was the guru who made clear that there are three approaches to spiritual life. They correspond to the three phases of human life, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood or presumed maturity. And in the childhood of our, uh, our seeking, what do children need? What do they seek? They seek an all-powerful parent figure to tell them how to live, to set restrictions in their life, to guide them, to put their trust in. And that's what people who follow gurus and authority figures often do. They have a childlike approach. There is nothing wrong with that. But it does represent the beginnings of our spiritual journey. There's nothing wrong with childhood. But we need to eventually mature through the difficult phase of adolescence. We're seeing many people today who uh, are taking up that adolescent role, that I am my own authority. Only I know what's best for me. All these teachers and authority figures are fakes and charlatans. And that's the adolescent approach. So they kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And they reject wisdom and they miss a lot. Because uh, naturally, during adolescence, we need to find our own values, not just what we've been taught when, as a child. But then eventually, hopefully, we mature to adulthood, where we find wisdom wherever it may appear, even in an old service yep. station. We learn from trees bending in the wind, clouds drifting across the sky. And, and so the guru actually uh, presented this to us, which was unusual, because many guru types are only too happy to welcome childlike devotees who want to surrender to them and worship them. Whereas he said, I want mature practitioner. So that's a sample of one of his many teachings uh, that I do share in an abbreviated form in, in the new book. Yes. And I could go on, but after these two teachers, and by the way, I was studying in the guru's community, living in a community household, living that way of life yeah. moment to moment for almost eight yeah. years. And after that, that's when uh, doors opened inside me and the impulse to write a book, which ended up way of the peaceful war. Exactly. Hi, this is Will here again. That bell was just to alert you that we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about the different ways to listen to and engage with this podcast. I really hope you're enjoying this episode. For Series 2, I'm releasing episodes monthly on Wednesdays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and all major podcast channels where you also can subscribe. Any ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts will be greatly appreciated as they really help to let others know about Folio Blisters. And don't forget, we're spelling blisters with a double S on the bliss. To find out more about this podcast and the hero's journey, please head to my website, ConsciousFrontiers.com, where you can sign up to the monthly newsletter for news and updates and follow our social channels. Thanks for listening, and now let's get back to the journey.
Well, listen, I'm sure we're going to pick up on, on more of these mentors um, and the influence they had, uh, particularly the next two as well, uh, the warrior priest, uh, Michael Bookbinder, and, and, and then the sage, David K. Reynolds. Um, but just to rewind the clock a little bit, I, I remember actually in your book, you described how LSD marked, you described it as, as marking the, I quote, conscious beginning of your search for illumination. And I wonder how helpful and illuminating you found that experience, which I know you prepared for uh, for weeks and took it, you know, took it very seriously and mindfully. Um, how useful was that experience for you? Many authors, sages and teachers today are coming out, so to speak, and talking more about uh, an LSD experience or uh, the benefits they encountered. Um, the, the only I was a pretty straight laced young guy. Um, and so it wouldn't have really occurred to me to use psychedelics mm. um, in growing up. I grew up, you know, I was born in 1946. I grew up through the 50s, time of innocence and denial and all sorts of things. Um, but finally, there were, there were the 60s. And I was going to UC Berkeley in California, uh, kind of a center for the human potential movement later, but also political uh, activism and so on. And... After I, my leg was shattered in a motorcycle crash, which I describe in, in the book, the original Peaceful Warrior book, in the movie, uh, it's depicted, uh, and it, it really did happen. I describe it in the new book as well, yeah. uh, more accurately. And that shook me up. I'm pointing upward mm. right now. I started asking bigger questions about life. That, in a way, was one of the dark nights of the soul. Certainly it was the dark night yeah, within the you know, way the Peaceful Warrior sort of framework, wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and that did uh, send me onward into what is life really about? I, I, I started, uh, I went from that bulletproof age in the 20s, you know, in 20-somethings, or I can do anything. And I started getting more reflective and quieter. And, and then I started wondering, what is in, what's the inner world? like I, I read about accounts in various books and that's when it struck me you know i think i might want to experiment with this lsd stuff and i found someone who had uh, a, a, a tab of righteous owsley uh, uh window pane whatever it was uh, lsd and i did it in the proper setting in a, a safe space among uh, a couple of friends so when i did do that journey for me it was a death and rebirth of the ego, so to speak, yep. uh, the psychedelic experience, mm. which I read um, in preparation. So I, I prepared well, and that's why I'm making a point of this because I, I don't want to seem like I'm endorsing a, a blanket testimonial, go out and grab some LSD or other psychedelics. We don't know uh, whether they're pure these days and, and so on. And so, they're not always right for everybody for me, here. What, no, they're not always right for everybody. Nothing is. So, but for me at the time, it was uh, the uh, profound experience, a preview of possibilities. And so it did influence even some of the writing I did in Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Some of the cosmic journeys I went on in that book were influenced by that Alex experience. And I probably should add that I took it. I was very, I was very interested. Several years I was very later. interested to read that, by the way. Yeah, just because I remember all these sort of very. Um, vivid, sort of slightly altered state scenes in the way of the Peaceful Warrior. And yeah, it was very interesting to know that they've been inspired by the LSD. Yeah, when I read it in your new yes. book. Yeah. Yes. But the second time, and the only other mm. time I, I took LSD, um, it was pretty much a waste of my time. 
uh, I, you know, many people try to go back and recapture the first mm. time uh, they do anything, but there's only one first time. And that time it was sort of, yeah, hallucinating and so on, but really it wasn't uh, anything like the first time. And I, I've always, uh, I've always, um, for myself, I don't tell other, other people what to do. I, that's not my goal. But for myself, I've never wanted to use recreational drugs. To me, they're entheogens. They're profound ways to connect with a deeper part of ourselves. Um, so I did it in a respectful way, not just a casual use. Much the best way, yeah. I think uh, I, I did far too much of the of the casual in, in my earlier days. But um, yeah, I think that's by far the best way to do it. Um, I think Aldous Huxley recommended, well, not recommended, but I think he did LSD six times in his life, if I remember rightly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But actually, weird enough, I remember being in Thailand when I was about uh, 19, 18, and uh, I was with some friends, and we, we bumped into a guy from Berkeley, California, who was about 27 at the time, and he said, you guys should try these magic mushrooms. And he said, yeah, Aldous Huxley recommended that if you have a child when he gets to the age of about um, 10, take him up the top of the mountain and give him, give him some magic mushrooms and he'll be made for life. Huxley. And we, <laughs> sure enough, we then took this magic mushroom omelette the following night, um, which, you know, took very innocently, thinking it was just some sort of, you know, some little sort of travel gimmick. And wow, <laughs> did that blow our minds. But yeah, powerful stuff. Um, anyway, so sometimes heroes or heroines will receive divine or unseen assistance on their journeys as with the Force in Star Wars, which was the first film to consciously apply the, the hero's journey framework. And Campbell, along with another, other, a, a number of other interesting thinkers, including the German philosophy Goethe, have shared this idea that when we follow our authentic call and truly commit to it, invisible forces seem to come to our aid. Campbell said, Folly or bliss in the universe will open doors where before there were only walls. Have you experienced this sense of benevolent unseen forces or magical assistance coming to your aid when you followed this call or any other call? Many people imagine they're all this benign type forces that come to your aid, but a motorcycle crash can also be an intervention, a divine Definitely, intervention yeah. that doesn't feel very pleasant at the time, but can turn a life around. Um, we don't need to look for adversity in life. It, it, it's part of and parcel of everyday life, sometimes small, sometimes larger. Um, but yes, I, I, do, I do have a sense of that. Some people metaphysically interpret such things as inner guides and master healers. Um, but I think it's important to stay open uh, to uh, help where it may appear. And, and, when you, we've all heard the cliche, the, the, the saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. But I believe many people misinterpret that. They think when they're somehow deserving enough or they've suffered enough or prepared well enough, then a teacher like Socrates uh, or Don Juan or Gandalf will appear in their life to guide them or kick them up the path. Um, I view it a slightly different way. When the student is ready or paying attention, that's when these uh, subtle forces and people enter your life. And we've all had moments like this. You know, there's that saying, when the universe calls, better pick up the phone. Yeah, as you say, that those, those, the, those moments can 
not not necessarily be the sort of a benevolent, uh, wise, loving guru, but maybe a big kick up the arse in some way from the universe with some sort of nasty shock or or an accident or whatever it might be to wake you up and yeah, make make you see the error of your ways and get get going into something more something more positive. Um, midlife midlife uh, crisis crises can become mid course correction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and crisis, of course, meaning opportunity in Chinese. Yes. Or both, yes, crisis exactly. and opportunity. Yeah. Um, right. So writing, of course, has been a key part of your journey. And talking of unseen forces, you explain in your new book how Socrates was like a muse to you. Would he be the, the muse that you channel? Would you, would you channel Socrates as your muse when you actually write your books? Well, uh, I think... Many people have heard of channeled works, uh, a supposed 20,000-year-old discarded entity from another dimension. Someone opens their mouth and they channel this being through. Yeah, I don't mean in that the way. Idea yeah. of cha- mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, that's yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. though, because the word channeling uh, does refer sometimes to people who claim to be channeling other entities yeah. who are wiser than them. Yeah. Now, in my own view, such entities are part of them. They're a part of their psyche. Uh, but it's a way for them to bring more wisdom into the world than they, their personality level, could access. So in a sense, Socrates, as I mentioned before, performed that function for me. Um, and who knows what influences are, are out there or in here. Uh, but we need to be at least open to the possibility that whether we interpret it. You know how some people say, I caught a cold when they get a virus and other people say I'm having a cleansing crisis, (laughs) you know, metaphysicians interpret the reality in maybe a more dramatic way. Um, uh, Things that can't be proven or disproven, which brings us to the warrior priest who was a metaphysical healer. And many of the statements he made and and things he taught could not be proven or disproven. uh, But they were interesting, quite interesting, intriguing, uh, speculative areas that, that I found, uh, opened different possibilities for example he spoke about the three selves and it's a, it's a, from the hawaiian kahunas the huna teachings um they talk about the the not just the conscious self which we call the ego or the personality level or the conscious mind uh, which is here to learn about life but then there's the higher self many people have spoken of that in a metaphorical or or poetic way without really understanding its function and then there's the basic self quite important which many of us refer to as the subconscious mind but that would be for a whole other seminar i just wanted to mention those three selves which were one of the contributions of the warrior priest which stimulated my my first book after way of the peaceful warrior uh to convey clearly to readers uh, how those three selves function in each one of mm. us. Um, this stage is also about facing and overcoming challenges. And Campbell, of course, later updated his his mantra for living, folly or bliss, to folly or blisters, to reflect the real grit, the real <laughs> grit that comes from following a true calling in your life. Uh, can you comment down on the role challenges or blisters have played in helping you grow on the road to bliss? Well, for me, the way I interpret it in everyday terms uh, are an appreciation for adversity. Mm, um, nice. You know, it, it, it's, if we agree on everything, only one of us is necessary. It's fine to, for people to disagree, uh, have a different perspective or interpretation. But 
I think we can agree that we've all gone through some difficulties, challenges, a form of adversity, physical, emotional, or mental pain in our life. And yet, if we look back on those times, we can, we'd have to acknowledge that we're a little bit wiser, maybe, maybe a little bit stronger for having gone through that. Sometimes digging out of a dark hole can give us the strength to climb the mountain. Absolutely. So there, we need to have a thread of appreciation for adversity. We don't have to pretend to like it when it comes. It's not usually pleasant, but we do emerge stronger and wiser with an expanded perspective. So that's why I, uh, I can appreciate those, those challenges. And I do describe them obviously along the way uh, in my relationships, my first marriage, I was married very young, and I go through that. And that's one of the reasons I left the professor, because all these techniques I was learning uh, weren't actually applied. They're, they made me better at doing inner work. But the inner work was kind of separate and distinct in many ways from uh, the challenges of relationships, career decisions, and so forth. There was like a firewall between the inner work and actual daily life. Yes. Absolutely. Um, often the, the biggest challenges people meet on a hero's journey is their actual own fear, be it a fear of failing or going out of your comfort zone or fear of facing your demons as they arise along the way. And I've got a couple of questions here relating to fear. On your journey to becoming a peaceful warrior and teacher of the peaceful warrior's way, when have you been held back by fear? If you have, of course. <laughs> Well, I was, first of all, my gymnastics training. See, gymnastics is one of the warrior sports. Um, one, tennis is a wonderful game, uh, or golf. But usually, it's rare that your life is in jeopardy playing tennis or golf. Um, but doing gymnastics or skydiving, bungee jumping, well, bungee jumping is not necessarily dangerous it's scary but um there are certain sports such as like free climbing rock climbing uh, wing suits base jumping those sorts of things your body is actually on the line and because in training in gymnastics i didn't use a lot of safety belts it was more careful progressions but any day i walked into the gym there was the risk of being paralyzed or or dying yeah. uh, it's happened so because of that i fear became an old friend of mine um, I interpreted it differently. To me, fear and excitement, the only difference between them was whether I was breathing. So I was used to facing fear. I used to crash 50 times a day. I was used to failure. I failed and failed and failed until I succeeded. And that was just the process. Yeah. For me. So that was, again, part of my own particular training. Other people have faced that in learning a musical instrument or a new language. There are all kinds of different approaches we take. Uh, again, those different paths up the mountain. So it wasn't just, one doesn't have to do gymnastics. Um, but, you know, there was a wonderful quotation by a boxing coach named Cus D'Amato, who said, heroes and cowards feel the same fear. They just respond mm. differently. And so I learned to respond in a particular way. First of all, stop thinking and jump. And so when I... Again, I, in my seminars, I go into more, uh, when do you listen to fear? Because it's a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master, as many of us have heard. So there are, there are when the fear is objective, if we could be injured or killed, um, then we need to, maybe the fear can guide us to prepare better, 
to take precautions, even to avoid a situation mm. that maybe uh, we're not ready to face, perhaps. Um, but if the fear is subjective, if we're afraid of being embarrassed, looking foolish, um, uh, shame, and so on, that's when I say cut through it with a warrior's sword and go for it. It doesn't break bones. You'll get over it. So you're embarrassed. So you look like a fool. I've looked like a fool many times. And those of us who are willing to look like fools usually learn yeah. more and, and achieve yeah. more. Uh, Robin Sharma, who's a, the author, Robin Sharma, who's one of the talking heads on the, the uh, Finding Joe documentary about the, uh, the hero's journey. He talks about courage, Jim, which is the idea of, uh, of uh, basically consistently going up to your fears and going past them on a regular basis so your comfort zone expands each time you do and you don't get so overwhelmed by your fears so yeah that's it's that kind of idea um, i've also heard successful writers and other successful people talk about having had a real fear of being successful or becoming successful that if they do reach the top of the mountain they risk becoming estranged from friends and family and all they know and perhaps people envying them and and uh yeah, just feeling very sort of strange and not very safe. Did you ever were you ever fearful of success along the way, Dan? Not consciously, um, but there is that moment where do you want to go for it, or would you rather step back into safer territory? Because there there is a risk involved, and the biggest risk is what if I succeed and I'm still not happy. Whereas if we don't really try, then the rest of our life we can go, well, if I'd really tried, I probably would have uh, grabbed the brass ring, you know, reached, uh, reached my goals. If I'd really tried, I know I would have done it. So by actually giving it our best effort and being willing to fail, that, that is um, – so the, the fear of failure and fear of success are blended together in many ways. Um, Barbara Rasp, a wonderful writer, said, uh, the lesson is simple. The student is complicated. <laughs> and we complicate uh, our approaches to food, to sex, um, and to fear, success and failure in life. And basically, if we just have a kind of go for it and, and see what happens. You, we, we, it's based on the realization that I learned along the way with the four mentors that we can't control the outcomes in life. Uh, we, we can't control whether we sink a putt, find love, or succeed in business. However, we can control our efforts. And by making a good effort over time, we vastly increase the odds of reaching that goal over not making the yeah. effort. And that's something I learned from the sage to at least bring, bring Dr. Reynolds in to the, uh, to the discussion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a realistic, simple approach based on what we do moment to Great. moment. Um, yeah, I'm sort of looking at the clock and realizing we're sort of running out of time. I've got lots more to ask you, so I'm going to sort of rattle through a bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if we move into the dark wood stage of the journey, which of course is when we when the character uh, in the stories or the protagonist meets their, their greatest fear or obstacle, um, what do you think, Dan, was the biggest fear you had to overcome on your own journey? Uh, and able to able to progress on your path. Well, it felt more like a dark cloud than a fear. There was a point in life where I was newly divorced from my first wife, 
it was a failed marriage. I really tried. It was eight, almost eight years. Um, and it finally imploded. And at the same time, uh, I had, I, I wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior after that. And the book failed. Uh, or seemed to. A few yeah. thousand. It's, it, well, it seemed to, but it yeah. did. It absolutely failed. Yeah. Um, it was out of print, and they declined to print a paper uh, a paperback. Their loss, eh? Um, so, well, yes, they re- had reason to regret it later on. Um, but it, who knew what would what would happen? But those times, it wasn't so much fear, but it was a dark time. It was that dark night of the soul. I tried this, and the doors closed. I tried that, and the doors closed. I was alone. Uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do from there. And I, I expressed that uh, uh, from truth and fiction mixed in my first book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, mm-hmm. but more accurately, of course, in the true story yes, you do, uh, yeah. in the, the new memoir. Yeah. This stage is also about meeting the shadow. And it's often by going into the dark that we find our treasure. As Jung said, we don't become enlightened by imagining figures of light, by making the darkness conscious. And I wonder how important have you found shadow work or illuminating the darker depths of yourself, say, for progressing on your path as a spiritual warrior? And can you perhaps share an example if one comes to mind? Yes. And let me just say the context of peaceful heart warrior spirit. I believe that we're all peaceful warriors in training because everyone is seeking to live with a peaceful heart, a sense of serenity, equanimity, and the chaos and change of everyday life. But at the same time, we need a warrior spirit. And it takes that warrior spirit, the willingness to stand up tall inside of ourselves, roll up our sleeves and march into life that allowed me to go into that shadow work first with a professor where we did group processing and dealt with some of the dark aspects of things we had done that we're not proud of, uh, going into that group process and really seeing ourselves realistically rather than through uh, self-image, you know, which tends to be brighter yeah. than, than our, our reality. So I, I started fairly young. Also, even the LSD trip uh, was a confrontation with my shadow. Uh, but, you know, I, it was really refined and accelerated and amplified in my work with the sage, because part of his work is doing uh, something called Nikon, which is inward looking in Japanese. Um, And it's a deep self-examination of three questions in relation to other people, which is, what have I received from them? All they've given me. What have I given back, which tends to be usually less? And finally, what troubles or difficulties have I caused them? Now, most people don't really want to contemplate that with other people. Um, but that's when I really got into the shadow work in a way that was more effective than uh, many other avenues such as dream work, uh, gestalt therapy, or, or other uh, ways to or to view oneself realistically. Mm. And that's where the sage was quite helpful and humanized. Yes, yeah, definitely. So the stage is also about death and rebirth. Uh, what part of Dan needed to die, would you say, in this dark wood stage in order for you to to move forward on your quest? Well, that brings up a a larger and important issue of what we call the ego, which gets a bad rap, you know, the term ego. Freud meant it neutrally. It just was ich. It was just I, uh, the organizing principle of experience. Freud didn't see it as a pejorative term at all. But today, 
with our psychological and spiritual sophistication. Uh, you know, in the old days, we used to say, um, I'm talking about ancient times, if people misbehave, they said the devil made me do it. And today we go, oh, no, my ego made me do it, as if it's a separate part of ourselves, yeah. something that must be gotten rid of. But the ego is the conscious self. I'm not trying to get rid of my ego. I'm trying to transcend it. That's the whole goal. And uh, I went through a number of dark nights of the soul, uh, confrontations with this, this self. Uh, and, and first in the LSD trip, uh, profound. It was a sense of ego death. Um, and, and after that, I emerged in a rebirth uh, as I came out of this LSD journey where uh, how did that manifest? Very simply, I didn't take this Dan Millman character quite as seriously anymore. I wasn't quite as ready to defend him and his strategies. And this was accelerated in the, uh, the training with the professor, his Arika school, A-R-I-C-A. Um, so I actually had a number of confrontations. How many of us, through a, a relationship difficulty, have seen parts of ourselves we aren't too crazy yeah, about. Yeah, for sure. Many people relate to that. And so in my difficulties with my first wife, um, I started seeing that, you know, I, I, I once imagined myself a knight in shining armor uh, on this hero's journey, and that that armor became tarnished and rusted uh, in, in how seeing my immaturity, my self-absorption um, going through that relationship. So... Again, I've gone through the dark night of the soul and, and seen my shadow in many different circumstances. Yeah, I think many of us, certainly myself, that have started off going on a, on, a, on a spiritual journey with sort of that naive assumption there, sort of heading for this wonderful sort of um, journey of, of towards light with sort of beautiful experiences. And little do they know that you actually got to really go through the, the dark, difficult stuff to actually move forward in any way. <laughs> exactly. Um, Campbell said... The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. What treasure, Dan, do you think you found or extracted from the dark wood of your journey? Ah, that is perhaps the most challenging question because we imagine a treasure as something glittery yeah. and, and valuable and rare and shiny. I had the image of a little piece of wood I found in, in, in a forest. Um, that was unusual shape, or the wind through the trees are a treasure. So it came back for me, the treasure was uh, a simpler life uh, of acceptance, self-acceptance, uh, respect for my own process that I started learning with the warrior priest who called himself a cheerleader to the soul. Yes. And also, and also work with the sage. Um, so the treasure uh, was daily life. You know, I, people, uh, some people might assume uh, just hearing this, that, oh, Dan studied with these four mentors and now he parrots their words in his own language. But actually, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. I couldn't duplicate the work or the background of the professor, his immense background in school. It has to be done within the context of his school. And I couldn't. I don't manifest uh, or as a guru who transmits the divine by just sitting with me. Um, uh, so each of these teachers were unique, but what they did was they opened doors of insight yeah. that helped me to share an approach to living I call the peaceful warrior's way. 
with basic tenets. For example, there is no best teacher, no best book, no best diet, no best religion, uh, no best martial art. There's only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. Uh, so this respect for your process and other people's process and my own, I believe, is part of that, that treasure I took away. Perfect. Thank you, Dan. Uh, and that brings us neatly into the return stage of the journey. Um, at the end of the hero's journey stories, the hero or heroine returns home stronger and wiser with an elixir from the journey to share, uh, something to share for the, for the greater good of the community back home. And in your case, arguably the, the wider global community. And I would suggest that your elixir was uh, the peaceful warrior's way, all the wisdom that you'd accrued on your journey, which you've continued to share as an evolved teacher in your numerous books and warrior's way trainings that followed to a growing audience around the world. You're 19... Yes. You're, you're, yeah, you agree with that? <laughs> yes. Your 19 books have included um, the Peaceful Warrior Saga, uh, and that includes following on from the first book, The Way the Peaceful Warrior, includes The Sacred Journey of the Peaceful Warrior, which I also really enjoyed when I was in my 20s. Um, there was The Hidden School, and then The Journey of Socrates, which I'm really intrigued to, to read. Um, of course, all these stories of finding the treasure are, of course, the treasure as well. Um, and so I suggest that the return stage of your journey is also uh, towards writing this book is also about sharing the essence of your, of your journey. Um, and yeah, just to touch briefly on the journey of Socrates, that, that book sounds fascinating. The, 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 the story of your iconic mentor, who uh, I see you've called Sergei Ivanov Socrates, which begins with his early life as an orphan child in Tsarist Russia. Um, and his journey to becoming a, a peaceful warrior, um, who would go on to mentor the character Dan in the way of the peaceful warrior, to, in the way of the peaceful warrior. Can you give listeners a little taste of what that book has in store and what readers might take away from it? It's probably my best written book. Is it? I wanted to see if I could. Yes, yes, I think it is. Most people, in fact, somebody gave me the sideways compliment because, again, Way of the Peaceful Warrior was my first book. I was learning and honing my craft, just starting out. Mm. Um, and, and when they read The Journeys of Socrates 25 years later, they said, Dan, I can't believe the same person wrote both these books because they were talking about the quality of yeah, the yeah. writing. And I, I wanted uh, many self-help writers like me who want to write a novelistic type book. It's usually fairly rudimentary, but it's a way to convey information and teachings, as I did in Way of the Peaceful Warrior. No one would call it a literary masterpiece, though it does have some uh, redeeming content. Um, whereas The Journeys of Socrates was a novel that I really called upon the best I could in me. I worked long and hard at it. And I wanted to convey the type of life that might have created and shaped a man like the old uh, uh, the old gas station uh, fellow I, I met, um, who was the archetypal teacher that many people have read and loved. Um, so it... it I, I had been studying a Russian martial art called Sistema, and I went to Lake Ladoga and uh, the uh, Valam, the monastery island that I describe in that novel. But I actually went with a Russian martial arts group, um, and that inspired me to, to make the location of Socrates' life, uh, being a child born in Russia who later immigrates to the U.S. And, and that's where that book was... Uh, 
uh, was inspired by it. Every book has its own, you know, creation story. Great. Well, I'm definitely going to read that one. That sounds that sounds that sounds Enjoy. most intriguing. Um, in Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, you describe how um, your fourth and last mentor you write about the sage brought you more focus onto attaining and teaching skills that you can use in everyday life. And you'd become an expert in a work, but still hadn't mastered some aspects of living effectively in the world. Um, so with the sage's help, you found a way to live with what you describe as living with your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground, which was also the inspiration yes. for the title of this book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. Can you expand, Dan, on what it means to live with your head in the clouds and feet on the ground and how your latest teachings reflect this? Well, I suppose I can convey that uh, with a, a true story, an incident that happened. There was a man who approached me uh, decades ago who had read Way of the Peaceful Warrior and said, Dan, I'm, I'm really interested in spiritual life now and spiritual practice now that I've read your book, but how can I make the time? I have a wife and three children and a full-time job. And he came to understand, as I do now, that his wife, his children, and his work in the world were his primary spiritual practices. Yeah. They demand more and develop more than going and sitting in a cave somewhere and meditating. And I know this because I've done both. And so daily life becomes our arena of, of personal evolution. Daily life is guaranteed to teach us through the challenges we meet all that we need to evolve as human beings if we're paying attention. Mm. And so that's... Uh, and, and the sage, now I had started this with a warrior priest, practical tools for everyday life and understandings. Not think, not going off to an ashram or sitting in a cave, but in, in the throes of everyday life. And that's the arena of what I call the peaceful warrior's way. And uh, the sage, uh, in his way, was a down-to-earth but also transcendent teacher because he reminded me of things I had forgotten in my explorations of the sky of mind and the metaphysical worlds and possibilities. He brought me back down to earth by pointing out what we have more control over and less control over and asking me where I wanted to spend my time and attention, uh, working on what I have less control over and never will have much control over, or what I have more control. In other words, most of us have grown up in a psychological culture, assuming that to live wisely and well, or to reach some kind of illumination, we have to fix our insides. We have to have only positive thoughts or quiet mind. We have to have the right emotions, like kindness and love and peace and happiness, uh, and motivation and courage and confidence. And if we feel those things and find ways to generate those feelings, then we can live well. The sage turned all that on its head. He said and pointed out, nobody has to accept this as I say it now, as I didn't immediately accept it either. But he pointed out how we have very little direct control by our will over what emotions are passing through us in every, any given moment or what thoughts are arising in our field of awareness the random discursive mind. He said, wouldn't it be better to focus on what actually shapes our life, which is what we do, what we actually do, our actions, how we move our arms and legs, what we say and do. S speaking is an action as well. So 
my life has become much more simple in terms of just what do I need to do now? That's the major question I have right now. What do I need to do in any given moment? What is my purpose? What is my goal? And then doing what needs to be done in line with that purpose. Yeah, great. Well, you've written various books, of course, about purpose, um, including yes. um, The Life You Were Born to Live and The Four Purposes of Life. And you've got a purpose, a life purpose calculator on your website, thepeacefulwarrior.com, that people can look at if they want to get uh, a few insights into their own purpose. Um, and your Magnus Opus um, book, Dan, your website tells me, is your book Everyday Enlightenment, which is the complete presentation of all your teachings, showing how to practice a more enlightened way of life. And while I imagine this book deals with practical advice for dealing with challenges in the arena of daily life, as you've described, I'm curious to know what your understanding of enlightenment is after a lifetime's travel towards this mountaintop, if we want to call it that. So what is enlightenment for you, Dan? And do you feel it's relevant, a relevant goal for people in the West to attain? Or is an Eastern construct more suited to people raised within Eastern spiritual traditions? Well, certain words like love and spirituality and enlightenment can be very tricky because they're interpreted differently. Yeah. And in the, uh, one of the first pages in the, new, in the memoir, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, I defined several words, spiritual, wisdom, enlightenment, and God. Um, and basically, spiritual is that which uplifts or inspires. Wisdom is perspective, realism, and understanding. Uh, Jimi Hendrix said it well. He said, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. Uh, in, and enlightenment for me is awakening to reality as it is without all the projections, the extras, the associations, beliefs, projections and opinions mm. we project onto reality. And it's also a practice, but that's for another time. And finally, God is all that exists. As Muhammad said, wherever you turn is God's face. Lovely. Thank you, Dan. Can you recommend one simple step or action that everyone can take following this call in the coming days to help them live a more enlightened life? Well, since you raised uh, uh, the subject of this wonderful man, Aldous Huxley, who many people don't know and studied the global heritage of spiritual practices, when he was uh, in hospice care, mm. His friend, Houston Smith, who literally wrote the book on world religions, asked Aldous, he said, Aldous, you've studied, done all this study for all these years. Is there any way you can summarize all that you've learned? And Aldous said, I'm a little embarrassed to say I can summarize it all in about six words. He said, try to be a little kinder. And maybe it all comes down to that, just practicing kindness whenever we can to ourselves as well as to others. I think that's brilliant advice, Dan. Yeah. Um, I think, and it reminds me of something that the Dalai Lama once said, be wisely selfish, because the, the, the kinder and more compassionate we are to others, the more that comes back to us as well. <laughs> and, if I, and if I can bring it home with a quote by Joseph Campbell, Great. Um, I believe he said, uh, maybe it's a paraphrasing, but he said, learn to go with joy among the sorrows of the world. Lovely. And what he meant by that, that sounds like he lacks compassion. How can you be joyous among the sorrows of the world? But, you know, walking around with a long face and depressed and bending over, it doesn't help anybody. 
So we need to each bring what joy we can into the world, even with all its difficulties. And that's something that the, the Dalai Lama seems to completely epitomize, isn't he? The sort of the, the constantly sort of cheerful exactly. face, despite all the difficulties and challenges around him. Yeah. Yes. Um, brilliant, Dan. Thank you. So your new book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, is just out, and it's available in all major bookstores and online outlets. Is there anywhere you'd recommend buying it from or just from all those places that you normally get books from? Well, uh, for those, I love audiobooks. And for those who enjoy audiobooks, it's just, um, I narrated and it was produced very uh, beautifully by High Seraphim Audio, my daughter and her husband. Uh, and it's a very professional treatment of it. So there's the audiobook, there's the electronic book, and of course the print. Great. And are there any particular courses or programs coming up that you'd like to uh, let people know about? Um, one stop, if they want to check out, anybody can check out the free Life Purpose Calculator, read about my books and upcoming events and online courses at PeacefulWarrior.com. Brilliant. Dan Millman, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your wisdom and your truth. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and I wish you every success with Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit and its journey out into the world. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Will. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folio Blisters, produced in association with Conscious Frontiers. I'd like to say a big heartfelt thank you to Isaac Nichols for editing this podcast series, to Michael Tyak for the music, and to our wonderful partners, which include the trailblazing New Consciousness magazines, Resurgence and Ecologist, and Kindred Spirit, the UK's Frontier Restorative Festival, Medicine Festival, and here in Glastonbury, the vibrant, reverent community enterprise hub, and also GFM Radio, who've kindly lent us their recording studios. Finally, if you have any friends or family who you think would enjoy and benefit from this podcast, please do spread the word and send positive ripples out into the world. Thanks a million. <laughs>